Well, I guess it's this good evening instead of the good afternoon. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, all of you being here at 6.15 uh, on the end of what has probably been a long day for all of you. Uh, and really looking forward today to talking to you a little bit about serverless SaaS. Uh, my name's Todd Golding, as the slide says. I'm a partner solutions architect at AWS. And I'm part of a team that's called the SaaS Factory. We help partners build and deliver and optimize SaaS solutions on top of AWS. Uh, and when I'm working with SaaS partners, I get, tend to get a good sense of like, what are the things they're thinking about? What are the common sort of trends? What's emerging? And the, one of the themes that keeps coming up over and over again with SaaS partners is this, uh, this sort of movement and this, uh, this desire to move to serverless offerings, either brand new offer, uh, SaaS partners who are saying, I want to have a greenfield opportunity and I want to deliver it in a serverless model, or um, you even see people who have got these long legacy apps trying to migrate them and trying as quickly as they can to get into a serverless model. Now, I will say um, serverless on its own has tons of appeal and there's lots of energy just behind people interested in going to serverless. But what's re been really intriguing to me is there's this really large number of SaaS providers who are particularly motivated uh, by the idea of delivering in a SaaS model, sorry, in a serverless model. And my belief is that um, many of them view serverless as, as a huge evolution of what they can do in terms of the cost model, the operational footprint of their applications. So I thought, as part of getting ready for reInvent, I'd say, what can I do, what can I help other AWS customers uh, do in terms of figuring out what does it really mean to build a SaaS solution in a serverless model? What's that architecture look like? And how does SaaS somehow change or influence uh, how you would build an architecture solution? Now, I will point out that this is a 300-level session, and I'm always careful with 300-level sessions because it's always hard to gauge where people are at on the continuum. If you're here and brand new to SaaS and a newbie, um, you might find this like kind of uh, too ahead of the curve for you a little bit, the terminology, some of it might be ahead of you. If you came here expecting maybe a 400-level session, we were digging the code and crack open the IDE and start just coding a serverless SaaS solution, we're not doing that either. But So hopefully that appropriately sort of scopes for you what we're going to do. We're mostly going to look at like architecture diagrams and look at what some of this architecture looks like and sort of uh, what the whiteboard version of what it would mean to build one of these solutions. And hopefully you leave here with at least a good set of ideas about what are some of the things you ought to be thinking about if you want to build an an a serverless model. Now, um, I say there's this natural sort of fit and there's this motive for SaaS organizations to move to the serverless model. And the question is, what's behind that? Why are, why are SaaS organizations so intrigued by the serverless model? And there's a whole bunch of reasons that are, are really good, but I thought I'd boil that down to a few here. And some of these are just natural side effects of adopting serverless, and some of them are, 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 are more intentional. Um, but here, one of the, the natural side effects we get is if we just have to take a problem and we have to de decompose it into functions, we naturally get much smaller, smaller deployment units. And if we're deploying in much smaller units, we tend to find that um, our ability to sort of deploy and limit the blast radius of a deployment gets much simpler. We find that our ability to turn and release features and functions gets easier in our environment. And this is very appealing to SaaS providers who are all about agility. They're all about how fast can I release new functions? How can, how can I make that whole DevOps pipeline 
work the way I want. So maybe as a side effect, but whatever the reason is that these smaller deployment units have a huge impact on how you ultimately deploy, how you might do canary releases, how you might do exotic things with A-B testing, all because you have uh, a functionally uh, function-based decomposition of the problem. Another thing that's hugely motivating here is this idea of, of optimized consumption. And what do I mean by optimized consumption here? When I talk about optimized consumption as a SaaS architect, one of the things I'm always struggling with is SaaS tenants impose load on my system in very unpredictable ways. New tenants sign up in volume, and suddenly I have all kinds of new customers I didn't have yesterday, potentially. Or customers start doing things differently with my system that I, they hadn't done before. And they suddenly start stretching the architecture, or stretching the scale of my system. And I find myself constantly chasing what's the right scaling sort of model? How can I build the architecture in a way that it can handle all this volatility? Well, what I find in serverless is I have to worry a whole lot less about that volatility. Suddenly now managed compute just scales as I need it to scale. And suddenly I can align actual tenant consumption with the realities of how tenants are using my system and focus less on the infrastructure. This is a huge one to me. I could say just for that reason alone, potentially, I might be interested in serverless for SaaS. The other bit here, and this is again, maybe more of a side effect again, is um, I get more natural isolation models. I need to be able to keep one tenant from somehow impacting another tenant. I've got to guarantee tenants that they can't cross boundaries somehow and, and see one another's resources. Uh, and if I'm in, at least at the compute level, the one thing I have as a nice little guarantee and side effect here is when I invoke a function, I'm always invoking a function in the context of a tenant. Um, this is unlike, uh, say, uh, services that I have running on EC2 or running in a Docker container where I might have some REST service that's a shared service and all kinds of tenants are reside and running in the process space of that, of that service at the same time. So now my ability for them to cross over, there's more opportunities there. Here I just naturally get a boundary. Now there's some complexity that comes with that, um, but we'll talk about that. I just generally think you get a simpler operations footprint here. Gets a little easier to manage and deploy and build your DevOps pipelines here. A little easier to keep your finger on the pulse. You get more granular view of what's going on. So instead of saying, the great big order service in my system, which has 15 entry points, is failing in my dashboard, I can now say the delete order function, that is the one uh, function that's really at the root cause here, is really where all my problem is. And if I solve that one piece of problem, um, I, can, I can keep my system healthy. So I get this much finer grained view of health and what's going on. This other one is, is one that is maybe a little more hand wavy, but I still think is an important side effect, which is um, the, the less I'm thinking about how to make my system scale, the less I'm focused on all these operational bits, the less time I'm spending on the whiteboard sort of figuring out how to solve the latest scale problem of my environment, the more time my team is focused on the actual functionality of my product. And so if I can take some of the burden of scale and some of the man burden of operational sort of complexity off their plate, I tend to find that I'm focused more on IP, and this is that sort of cycle we're talking about where now I can, if I've got agile releases and my teams are all focused on, on actual functionality, suddenly we're closing the gap with competitors or staying way ahead of them or whatever we're doing. And then the last one here um, is, is more about um, the granularity you sort of end up with here, right? So if we just say we're gonna go build a microservice 
based architecture, and we're going to decompose our system into a set of services. The question I always get from people, even outside of SaaS, is, well, what's the right size for a service? How big should my service be? And so you end up with all kinds of flavors and sizes and shapes of services. Well, when you're in the function-based decomposition model and you're decomposing to functions, you have no choice. You're going to decompose into smaller bits. Your services are going to be smaller, and it's going to force you to think about those bits. So these are the sort of the big candidates for me for, for, for why serverless SaaS uh, organizations are really intrigued by the technology. Um, the other thing for me is, and this has just been a diagram I show all the time because for me it was my life as a SaaS architect before I was at AWS, which is I've always had this dream to say, can I build and architect a, solu a solution where the actual consumption in the, uh, of a tenant aligns fairly precisely with the cost and the performance and, the, and all the other moving parts of my infrastructure. So if you look at this diagram and you look at the blue line, if you say, that's my notion of tenant consumption. By the way, that's my notion of consumption right now. If I look at this graph in another hour, it might look wildly different. If I look at it tomorrow, it might look wildly different. But however that graph changes, I want somehow the red line, which is how much I'm spending on infrastructure and all those other bits, to trace it as closely as I can. And we all want this. We all talk about this. We do auto-scaling. We scale on every, all these creative things we can to try to get there. But the truth is, most of the time, we're over-provisioned, and we just are too nervous to make that gap too big. So we're spending more on our infrastructure than we really should. And this is really hard now. That's hard even without SaaS, and it's really even harder when you say, I've got all these crazy tenants who are doing all these things, and they're all running the system in crazy ways. How am I ever going to make those two lines line up? Well, to me, this is right in the sweet spot. Again, with the caveat of compute, we have other resources we consume. But at least for compute, right in the sweet spot of what um, serverless is trying to solve. So if you were to say, what does a sort of serverless SaaS architecture look like? Like, what? draw me one, get on the whiteboard, draw me one. And I, and I got to this slide, I, I drew it about 18 million ways, it seemed like, because I was like, I really want to show everybody a really good serverless SaaS architecture. And I thought about, well, what, I could show you all these moving parts and hit all these bits. And I came up with this, which is pretty much the serverless architecture you're going to see in any talk that you see here. There's nothing wildly exotic about it. If you've seen a serverless uh, architecture diagram from AWS, it looks like this. You've got a web client. The web clients, typically, we try to push in these serverless environments, especially all this client bits over the wire and run it now at S3, and everything's in the browser. So we'll see AngularJS, and we'll see uh, React, and all these really cool sort of frameworks over there, and, uh, and single-page applications. And then those applications uh, are leveraging API Gateway as the entry point into the actual functions of our system. Uh, we've grouped these functions into some logical services. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. And then those services are uh, consuming multi-tenant storage. Now, partitioning, which is a thing I talk about all the time, how to do tenant partitioning of data, serverless doesn't change that. We're not going to cover that today. And go, I've got a white paper on this. I've got blog posts and all kinds of other things on how to partition data. Serverless isn't going to change this. However, what we're seeing is that the serverless mindset, the serverless style, if you will, is now reaching beyond just compute and finding its way down 
to the storage level and in very interesting ways. So near the end of this talk, we'll get into what, how is it really influencing our approach to storage and why do we need serverless even down at that storage tier? But the truth is this isn't that exotic of a diagram. The truth is serverless SaaS is this diagram with all kinds of additional things to think about. So how do we get multi-tenancy into our serverless architecture? Well, we have to think about how we're gonna get tenants introduced into the environment. What does that look like in serverless? Not crazy wild, but there's some bits we have to think about there. How are we gonna authenticate and authorize in here? Well, we've got the gateway now, and the gateway's our view into this environment. How does the gateway change the way we might think about how we authenticate, how we authorize access into those services? Uh, and to be fair here, even if you're using gateway with uh, ECS or another service, these same models would be true, but gateways are a natural way into Lambda functions. So we're gonna talk about what it means to authenticate and authorize coming in through that path. Um, and then we'll talk about tenant isolation. And this will be a, a, a bigger chunk of what we talk about, which is these functions are awesome, but how do we make sure one tenant can't somehow impact another tenant? What does it mean to do isolation in a managed function environment? Uh, what are my options there? So we'll look at that. And then we'll look at data access and partitioning and a really We'll talk about partitioning, but barely. Mostly it's like, what would it mean to have tenant context in these functions and have these functions go get data where, where there is a multi-tenant environment, where the storage is somehow partitioned? How would I implement that? What would the strategy be? We'll talk about DevOps and agility, just briefly, just to talk about how this decomposition changes your deployment model. And then the last thing we'll say is, Great, okay, now I've got these functions, I know how to write functions, I know how to decompose in this model, but how do I write functions that are tenant aware? And if you've seen other talks I've done, you're gonna say, I, that's what you said in the other talk, guess what? And the, it's the same model that applies here, but we have to cover it and say, what does it mean to serverless? So I'll go back here real quick. So those are the building blocks we're gonna talk about and talk about how those things overlay on top of uh, our serverless architecture. And the first one I mentioned here was onboarding. Um, and onboarding is interesting in that when I talk about onboarding, I'm talking about what are all the moving parts that are involved in getting a new tenant introduced into your system. Uh, and I'm a huge proponent of saying that anytime a new tenant gets introduced into your system, they must get introduced through a fully automated scheme. Um, even if those tenants are coming through some enterprise sort of relationship. Somebody signed a big contract, they signed up for three years, and somebody internal on the engineering creates that tenant. I want that tenant created through an automated process and all the moving parts of getting that tenant created there. So, because some people will say, well, we're not B2C, so we don't need automation around tenant creation. Oh, you need it. You need it just as bad as you do in B2C. It's just B2C is another way to create a tenant. You're gonna have more volume in B2C, um, but you still need automation around that. So then what services are needed to support that? Well, I've, I've got sort of a menu of choices here um, that you might think about. Um, registration, um, tenant management, user management, tenant provisioning. So registration would be like, how do you actually fill out whatever the data is you wanna fill out about that tenant to create their profile? How do we actually man manage the tenant? They're, are they active, inactive? What tier are they in? Um, all that sort of data. How do we actually represent user identities? And how do we connect those identities to tenants? Uh, and how do we actually do the provisioning? If I've got some um, siloed environments we talk about where each tenant has their own infrastructure, 
I've got to actually provision that infrastructure and set potentially account limits and do all kinds of other things. That has to be part of that automation as well. But the more interesting part of this one to me is that these services, these capabilities, these functions need to run in a different context than the traditional application functions. So those functions on the left-hand side that you're looking at, um, those functions were all there to represent the business capability of my application, the functionality of my application. They all run in the context of a tenant. These services, registration, tenant management, and so on, they are not gonna run in the context of a tenant. They're gonna run in some additional context. So my point is, with this onboarding, as you think about isolation and you think about identity, you have to think about what context these system services are going to have to run in. By the way, I left billing out of that. I shouldn't do that. I always say people shouldn't leave billing out of it, and I just did, which is billing is a big part of this equation too. You should be creating and provisioning the billing account as part of this experience. So what does authentication look like? Well, authentication isn't all that exotic to me in serverless. It's the same authentication uh, that we talk about for lots of other SaaS delivery models. We're essentially going to say, um, somewhere outside the scope of my functions, um, somebody has to get tenant context for me. And the model we always advocate is one where we say, hey, the incoming token, whatever that token is, in this case, I've got it coming in from um, Cognito, that incoming token will have um, all the tenant context in it. It'll have the tenant ID, the role. What I don't want to do is say, hey, you auth, you get inside, and then somewhere inside in a function, I'll go resolve uh, who, what tenant you're mapped to because that brings all kinds of other problems with it. So I want, if I can, to have the sort of SaaS identity be a first-class concept so that by the time that token hits the API gateway, um, all the net data I need, all the data my services need, all the context they need to figure out what tenant I'm bound to, uh, is already there. So then we're just down to, well, what is the API gateway gonna do with that? Uh, well, the API gateway gives us some really interesting options here uh, that we maybe don't have in our traditional apps. In fact, I'll often see um, security and RBAC kind of concepts applied right on each service in a traditional, say, uh, container-based model or ECS model where people are writing microservices. And here we can push all of that out to the API gateway in a serverless model and say, hey, we'll connect these custom authorizers to the API gateway, their Lambda functions themselves. They'll crack that um, token open. They'll look at that token and say, oh, your tenant X and your role is Y. And based on that, I'm only going to let you access these particular paths to the gateway. Um, so I sort of at that bound, I get another security bounder here to say, you can't even get to the functions if you're not allowed to get through that path. This is just standard API gateway to solve the problems, but is how, it's also really rich uh, for serverless SaaS environments. So it's, it's a bonus here to me that you get to do this. The other bit of this is um, the development API. And I think the development API is important to note here, and this could just be a whole talk potentially on API gateway and what it means to have a SaaS provider expose uh, uh, the, their API uh, via via API gateway, how do I hand out keys, how do I manage this, and because this is an area people don't often think about when they think about their multi-tenant solution. They say, yes, we need a developer API. Yes, we'll use API gateway. Go ahead, here's your key, go crazy. But guess what happens? Um, you end up with a tenant, like here I've got three tenants, three tiers, standard, professional, and premium. 
Well, standard user could come in. I had this, I was at an e-commerce SaaS company, had a little bitty $49.95 a month customer running out there, and they were uploading like a 100,000 part catalog every day as a way of updating their catalog through the API. And they were just throttling my system and affecting the, the experience of my higher tiered partners, sorry, customers. And, and so what I really see is the API gateway here through the use of usage plans and some of the other bits that you can apply here is a way to connect um, um, policies to your individual tiers to control and throttle individual tenants. And, their, and also this gives me an upsell to the premium tier to say, hey, because you're premium tier, you're going to be able to make more calls and you're not going to get throttled as quickly. So that's, that's authentication. Now let's talk about isolation. And if we look at traditional notions of isolation, sorry, went one too far. If we look at the traditional, and we talk about silo, all I mean in silo, that's just SaaS terminology to say um, tenants running in their own sort of dedicated infrastructure. Um, if if uh, I want to run uh, EC2 and I want to have tenants fully separated from one another at the compute level, I have all kinds of constructs available to me. I can do VPCs, I can do security groups and knackles and all kinds of exotic things to be able to say, this tenant can't cross the boundary to this tenant. And those are very reassuring. I also have ways with containers to be able to do that, ECS. I can use namespaces, I can also use networking constructs. There's all kinds of things I could do over there. I could even create separate clusters for each tenant. So in this world where we actually have some notion of a server or a container, the, the idea of isolation uh, makes a lot more sense. But th the question is, what does that really mean in a world where there is no server? What, what is our notion of isolation in a completely serverless universe? And there's a couple of ways we can approach this. And uh, to be honest, when I get to the end of this isolation section, you're going to see that I didn't necessarily solve all your problems as much as I sort of gave you a framework of the things you ought to be thinking about because this isolation problem isn't an easy one. Um, one of the approaches I could take is to just do the same kind of thing I did with, with servers, which is to say, I'll provision functions for every single separate copy of the functions for every tenant. So tenant one will get a, have tenant one functions, an entirely separate copy of that function will be deployed and made available to tenant two, and that will be my unit of isolation. And in that mode, I could do something like this, which is I could say, I'll use IAM policies, in fact. I'll go out with IAM, uh, and I'll create an IAM role, and, and I will run these functions in the context of that IAM role, and that IAM role then will be used to cascade uh, my whole isolation footprint, not just across compute, but across my access to storage and any other resource. Essentially, I'll start as, at the, at the uh, function level. That'll be my entry point. That IAM role will then be used as those functions try to go access storage or whatever they're accessing. Seems like a really great idea. And if you have a small enough number of tenants, it's a really good idea, in fact. Um, there's some downsides here. You could say, well, I'm still replicating and I have to have now a more complex deployment footprint because I'm deploying separate copies uh, of the functions and I have to think about what that looks like in my deployment cycle. Um, I could have a slightly more complex management footprint for this. You could argue there are some bits against that. But if you're saying, at least from an isolation perspective, seems pretty awesome. But the challenge of that is 
IM has limits on the number of roles it can, it can associate. So if you tell me I'm going to have 100,000 tenants, I'm going to tell you you can't use this approach. So what's my next option? And my next option is one to say, um, I'm going to sort of defer isolation till those functions actually try to access a resource. So I'm going to deploy one copy of the functions for all tenants. They're going to be in what we call a pooled model. They're all shared. They're all available. No separate deployment for each tenant. And now when I deploy in this model, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hope that these functions are written in a way that they are acquiring credentials. They're acquiring scoping um, sort of mechanisms that will scope their access to resources. So at the time I call the function, now when that function wants to go and get uh, uh, and talk to DynamoDB, it would go out, it would say, find me based on my identity and everything else in a, a set of credentials, hand those credentials back to me, and use those credentials to access the resource. And at least in that model, I have made a pretty good effort to, to isolate these instances, but it does require some collaboration, so co cooperation from the development team to say, we're going to use that as our general approach. Now, one of the ways, uh, and I'm, I've been working with uh, a gentleman on our team, uh, Mike Deck, who's a great serverless guy on the partner team, and we've been talking about, well, what might that look like? How could we make it easier for developers to comply with this? How could we make it just sort of automatic that they would comply with this? And we started talking about, is there some way we could do some kind of wrapper around each function? And that wrapper would be part of a framework, and that wrapper would essentially intercept each in incoming call. And before that call proceeded, it would acquire some context and say, OK, function, hand into the function. Here's the credentials. Here's the bits you could use at, during the scope of this function. Uh, or it could even potentially assume a role, or it could do something. But it would do it entirely outside the view of the developer. And you can imagine this one I have here is just a little node example. It's a pretty wimpy chunk of code here. But it's essentially using this Lambda wrapper. It wrappers my Lambda function. And the whole idea of these wrappers is that I can do something on the entry to my function. I could potentially do something on the exit to my function. In fact, you'll see um, a lot of the management and monitoring tools for Lambda use this very exact approach to, to, uh, to doing. Used to use agents and monitor JVMs. Now what they have to do is wrapper these, these Lambda functions. And then they instrument their metrics in uh, with these wrappers. So it's a, it's a pretty good technique. Now, the hard part of this in terms of being prescriptive for everyone is it kind of depends on what language and what stack you're using. Here I used a wrapper function. If I were using Java, I might have used aspects as a way to do this. If I were using .NET, I could probably have all kinds of tools available to me to do this. So you really have to say, sort of separate yourself from the mechanism and just say, for what's the right tool in my stack uh, that would be the best way to address this problem? So the best news of all this to me, though, is um, no matter which isolation scheme I pick here, no matter how I do this, um, if you just want to talk about consumption and the cost for consuming these functions, even if I say for each tenant deploy a separate copy of every function, if tenant one in this example isn't consuming anything, let's say tenant one goes dark every day at 5 PM and they don't come back online. I have no idle resources for that tenant. There's no bill for the tenant's compute resources there. 
even if I've deployed a separate copy. That isn't true if I'm doing uh, EC2 or if I'm doing containers. There's always going to be some idle sort of notion of for almost every service, including registration and all these other services you're going to create. There'll have to be some kind of idle footprint for them. And you can minimize that. But in these models, I don't have to care about any of that. I can essentially say, um, whatever you're consuming, tenant one or tenant two, that's what you're paying for. I'm just deploying it all, and, and, uh, and I have the confidence that I've already sort of optimized for consumption here. Now, this slide has troubled me, uh, and I'm, I've debated whether it's a valuable construct, but I'm going to go for it here, and we'll see if it connects for you. Um, to me, um, I have looked at this notion of function-based decomposition. And I've said, I've, for example, got two services here, order management and a catalog service. And they both have create order, update, create product, update product, and so on. Um, and I have talked to other people and said, where is the microservice in this diagram? And some people will say the functions are the microservices. Those are absolutely the microservices. But then I said, well, microservices are supposed to, uh, and they're supposed to encapsulate and the data that they manage as well. Are you saying that create order and update order will manage separate copies of the data and have their own database to manage the data? Well, no. Well, well this for me becomes important as I think about multi-tenancy because um, when I think about multi-tenancy, each one of my microservices, each one of those data encapsulation strategies could potentially have a different partitioning scheme for my data. And so I want to, the, where is the boundary of a service ends up being an important question to me because it drives the strategy I'm going to pick for data. In fact, I might start with the data and the partitioning scheme as a way of deciding which service I'm going to have. I've seen people do that just because they'll say, this particular chunk of data gets managed in a very complex way, and how I partition it has got to be very specific, and I will build a microservice around that, and the rest of the data for it will get managed by another service. And so for me, I, I am at least branding this as logical microservices. I'm, nobody is using that terminology, but it is what I feel exists, which is in the world of serverless, a collection of functions work together and collaborate together and encapsulate a representation of data. And to me, that is the microservice, and that is the level at which I'm going to decide how to partition data. So here in the example you'll see in order management, I've decided hey, the right way to represent data and partition data here in this serverless model is to have a separate instance for each tenant. I've decided that data has to be completely separate and siloed. But in catalog management, you'll see that I've actually used what I call a pooled model, which is one table that holds all the data for all tenants. And I've just used some kind of key here as the partition key uh, to represent and, and partition each tenant's data. So um, I, I, my big strong point on this is I do think you ought to be thinking about this. You ought to be thinking about how multi-tenant data partitioning influences which functions are sort of logically grouped together. The other part of this is um, serverless SaaS gives us an entirely different notion of, of, of scaling here. When we traditionally wrote REST services and deployed these REST services, like this order management service you see here, we exposed some sort of REST API on it. And we would sit down and say, well, how does this, how does this order management service scale? What should my auto-scaling policy be? Well, I'll say it, it's gets most of the day. It's all gets. 
But once in a while, people do a delete. And by the way, delete is super disk intensive, but gets are super memory intensive. Let's just pretend that's true. It probably isn't. But let's, they have different sort of needs for scaling. And if, for, if somebody comes along one day and starts doing all kinds of deletes, my, will my scaling policy really scale effectively when I've set it up more for gets? Huh, I don't know. So what do we do? Well, we, we just basically say, let's over-provision, let's scale more uh, pessimistically, and our unit of scale becomes the whole service. And by the way, I have to own the policy for scaling that. I scale it, I decide what that policy is, and somebody's watching that policy all day long, and I will say, for some set of policies in your system, you will always be chasing the right policy and the right scale. So what does that look like, though, in a serverless model? What's my unit of scale now? My unit of scale is a, an actual function. So I don't now care whether you, how many times you call get or how many times you call delete. If you call delete for the rest of the month and that's all you call, I'll, delete will scale out and we won't, have to we won't have to spin up very many instances of, of get. And the best part of all this is I'm not building a policy. Nobody's on the hook for the policy for this. I'm going to go back to that only because to me, you say serverless and SaaS together, the very reality of that notion of scale and the fact that I'm not thinking about that is somewhere at the, at the center of this matching consumption and all these other bits to one another in a way that makes this so appealing. Because you can imagine you know, SaaS organizations are really trying to find the right units of scale here to make the bottom line right because they don't want to be spending more on infrastructure than they should. Okay. Now, I also said, and this is my disclaimer, this is the slide you'll always see from me, what does it mean to write a tenant-aware function? And by the way, writing a tenant-aware function in EC2 or in uh, ECS or in Lambda, they all ought to think about this. But right now, we're talking about Lambda. So what does it mean for a Lambda function uh, to have tenant awareness? Well, our whole goal here is actually to say, the, the, the people that are writing these functions I don't want them to have tenant awareness. I want them to write these functions like they're writing a single tenant function if they can. Yes, they're going to have it. It's a fantasy world to pretend they don't, probably. But if I'm doing it well, they shouldn't have to have a whole lot of awareness. Well, how do I get there? Well, it means I've got to take all the things, all the areas where tenant context is applied and pull them out of the functions and hide them away from the actual developers and make those policies exist somewhere else. So if I want to log in my Lambda function, I just want to log like I would always log. And I want somebody else to say, I'm about to log. Go find the tenant context. Crack open the token. Go figure that out. Inject the tenant context into the log and um, make all that work. I didn't see any of that. I just, I just logged. Same thing is true on metrics and analytics and metering. I just want to meter. But metering and all these things, they all have to happen in a tenant context. How do they do it? I don't care. Send the request along to the metering and, um, and analytics tooling and let it figure out how to do that for me. And then the most obvious one here is, I need to go get data. Well, somewhere on the other side of the line, somebody has come up with a partitioning strategy, and somebody's going to resolve um, that tenant context to an actual connection string or a key or some mechanism that will determine how I get the data based on the sharding scheme of this particular function. I don't want the function thinking about that. I want that to be hidden from them. So 
Uh, essentially, what I'm basically saying here is do what everybody does when they do good design, which is take these horizontal concepts and pull them away from the functions. Take these tenant-aware concepts and pull them away from the functions, just like you would do for any sort of good uh, architecture and good design. But don't do it in this super heavyweight model. I'm not, these, these, this isolation of these tenant concepts don't have to be massive, big, huge frameworks. They just have to be good implementations of reusable policies. And yes, they'll look different in Node. They might be modules in Java. They might be jars and .NET. They might be assemblies. I don't. However, you decide to package it, um, reuse them. So, what does it mean then if we if we implement this and my functions have to do this? What does it actually look like to flow context through it? So, if I go out to Cognito and I auth with Cognito and I get back this first class notion of SAS identity that I talked about, and it comes back to me uh, via a token. Uh, and that goodness is all baked into there. I hit the API gateway with it, and now the API gateway um, gets a token. Sorry, one ahead there. Um, gets the token passed into the function, and now my function says, I gotta go get data. Oh, well, uh, and I, I wanna write a log message when I go get it. I'm going to get products, or whatever the thing I'm gonna log. Well, my functions just say to logging, hey, go log the message, here's the token, you figure out what to do. Um, I got a meter while I'm here. Here's, the, here's just meter. Here's the token. Pass it through like you're calling any other service. Let the header go with it uh, and let them figure out what the responsibility is. And then when I finally want to go get data, um, I'm going to go out to the data, send the same token in. The data access will pull it apart, find the tenant ID, and say, oh, OK, I'm using um, uh, instance per tenant. I'll go find out which connection string you have and I'll go to some partition manager or potentially resolve that connection string, and I'll go get you some data. No magic to any of this, nothing special about this, but philosophically important. And important because the, the speed with which you can write those functions, and you're going to be writing lots of functions because you're going to get a huge population of functions out of this exercise, the degree to which you can isolate these concepts is going to have a lot to do with your productivity and your agility. If, this, if these functions end up with all this sort of policies and knowledge embedded directly in each individual function, uh, it's going to be hard to sort of tweak and tune them. Now, the other piece we have to talk about here is state residue. And this one's going to fall into the category of um, problems without direct answers, again, much like I, I mentioned on isolation. But an important thing to think about. So imagine I have a function, have a tenant that invokes that function. Uh, and that function, because the developer decided to, decided to create some kind of in-memory cache. Creates a map or a dictionary or creates something. And it populates it, it uses it for the scope of that function and says, I'm all done. Function goes back and says, I'm ready for the next caller. Tenant two comes in, invokes that same function. Anybody have a sense for what might go wrong here? Um, the residue of that function of that of that previous call may still be sitting there in the state of that function, and now imagine that's actually tenant data potentially in that in there. I've got something some data that belongs to another tenant. Now tenant two isn't going to come along and may not be intending to do anything wrong or mischievous here, but the truth is it has visibility into data it shouldn't have. So what do we do with it? Well. This comes down to, again, policies and approach to me, which is, first of all, I would like to discourage anybody who's writing functions 
from creating in-memory cache here if I can, right? Um, but there probably are practical scenarios where somebody might need an in-memory cache. So I can't say it's forbidden, but I at least want somebody to justify it if they're doing it. And then what I'm going to have to say is I'm going to have to have clear mechanisms that say on the entry and the exit here, somebody's got to say own the responsibility for flushing out any of these bits the best they can. But I can't say that I can have a foolproof sort of way to tell you here, this will always clean it all up for you. I think this is the problem that still needs to be solved. But it would be, to me, incomplete, not to mention it as something you ought to be thinking about. Now, agility. And I won't touch on agility a ton here, because I feel like most of you probably already sort of get the value of DevOps. But I also feel like, as a SaaS guy, that um, I have to emphasize that the whole point of this exercise, the whole point of getting all this goodness is that ultimate, is the ultimate payoff of all this is we get awesome agility. We roll features, we roll functions all day long. We don't have downtime uh, when people are deploying. Uh, we don't have these like only we only release every quarter sort of mindsets. Um, we are, uh, our pipeline, our approach to rolling out features and functions has to be good. Now the good news to me is, and I talked about this a little bit, stole my own thunder maybe a little bit here, is that functions just inherently make this easier for us. Um, right, and actually functions in combination with the API gateway, because the API gateway will, will let me do very cool things in terms of um, staging variables and other things that control the way these functions get deployed. My overall DevOps tooling story can get easier here as well, but mostly it's just the fact that I've got smaller units of deployment here. Now, the other bit of this is, um, um, from a agility perspective, the other thing I always want to do is reduce the blast radius of my functions. And if you look at the model on the left-hand side, which is a traditional e-commerce kind of model, um, I've broken it down into microservices. I've got a catalog and ratings and checkout. And one you can't see too well with an, uh, the X to it is a cart. But that cart still has a surface area of a handful of REST entry points to it. And if some part of that REST uh, func one of those REST calls actually fails, and takes out uh, that particular aspect of the cart service, it's likely it's going to take out the entire cart service. So my blast radius there isn't just the one entry point to cart that I was calling. It's possible that all of cart went down. And if all of cart went down, all the things that are integrating with cart um, may go down, depending on how uh, fault tolerant they are. Um, now, just in a, a function-based model, um, now I could say, it might be that one of these services is represented by these seven functions that you see I have up here. And if one of these functions go down, the other six continue to work. And the other six continuing to work might be uh, reasonable. I might be able to have really good fallback strategies now because I can more granularly handle and fall back from when one of these functions fails. I can't quite do that when it's more coarse-grained service like the other example on the left-hand side. So for me, just generally, we're always trying to write fault-tolerant systems. And in SaaS environments, if my environment goes down, my entire customer base is down. So the, the idea that I can have a smaller blast radius here is huge to me. So even if you're mostly interested in the code, you ought to also be interested in um, the agility that comes to me with the serverless model. Now, uh, earlier I sort of teased that, hey, serverless and storage or have an, an intersection that we need to think about as well. And 
what I found interesting is, is I've worked with partners and I've gone in and talked to them like about how they're partitioning their data and what are the challenges they're facing. One of the most common themes I have is I will find that partners have these tenants that are, have wildly different data footprints. Some are massive, some are tiny, some are pushing the data all day long on one particular, for one particular type of data, others are pushing another type of data. And what we find is that these partners are challenged to figure out, well, what's the instance type that I ought to use for my storage for this particular type of, of customer, right? And, and so they're, like, uh, they're chasing this sort of um, sizing scheme because they don't want to be over-provisioned, but they also want to find the right instance. And obviously, some technologies aren't instance-based, but lots of the storage technologies are instance-based. And so you're still stuck with the fact that there's some server between you and the data, and the server is taking unpredictable load, and you have to figure out, how do I size it? Now, usually I see two approaches here. One approach is, we're just gonna put a huge instance out there, we're gonna give those tenants a massive instance, and we just know that it's probably 90% of the time, it's 20% loaded. And at least now it never can fail, because when we finally do get a heavy load, we've put a big enough instance there. And of course, the classic over-provisioning problem here, which is I've raised the cost substantially of my system. Now, the other approach I've seen, which has lots of mechanics to it and is kind of complicated, is one where organizations will do load-driven resizing. So they'll actually say, we've got metrics and monitoring, and our ops team is constantly watching these tenants and their activity and their data footprint and their other CPU metrics. And they're saying, oh, um, we'll slowly resize the tenant uh, and their instance, and they'll migrate the data sometimes, and they'll look for clever ways to slowly move tenants to different size storage. And that, to me, is painful. It's a really hard exercise, and you can still get it wrong. You're still sort of guessing at, you're more intelligently guessing, but you're still guessing at what's the right size of the data. And guess what? When you, finally, when you go left to right on this sizing scheme, um, you never tend to go back. So if that tenant's data uh, activity somehow changes substantially, and they went to something larger, and now they're small again, you'll rarely see somebody go back to a smaller instance. So we still end up over-provisioned. We also see this when we use pooled data. So when tenants are sharing an instance and the data's in a common table here, we'll see a tenant saturate an instance. So we'll say, oh, this giant tenant is um, using this same instance that these smaller tenants are, but they're pushing the I.O. of the instance, and they're pushing the, all the, the memory of that instance in a way that's affecting the other tenants. So once again, we're at the mercy of what do we do here? How do we size this? Now, one of the cool things is um, there are finally strategies to me that are coming along that start to extend the reach of serverless and all the goodness we talked about with, with Lambda down into the storage tier. And Aurora Serverless is one of the first pieces. I'm sure there's others that are doing it. It's the one I know about um, that started to give me options to solve these problems. So if you look at Aurora Serverless, you'll see now we have our app. Our app goes through some proxy fleet. That proxy fleet has a set of instances that are Aurora instances here. And those instances talk to storage. The storage and the way you pay for storage in Aurora Serverless, exactly the same as it would be with or without serverless. Um, but this proxy fleet that sits between me and the instances gives me, on a transparent basis, 
this ability to, to enact, interact with the instances without being bound to any one specific instance. I don't have an instance now that belongs to me. Aurora happens to give me one to process the query or process the insert that I've, I've put out there. But um, that isn't guaranteed that that'll be the same instance that'll process it five minutes from now. And, uh, and so, this, and again, this all happens transparently. So you still, if you swapped Aurora serverless in for traditional Aurora, in terms of programmatically, it would all look the same. So it does this all very seamlessly. Um, but the way it achieves this is through what we call a warm instance pool. So what Aurora here then does, it does is says, I'm going to maintain a pool of instances of varying sizes, small, medium, large, whatever. And based on the actual activity in your system, I'll figure out what size instance you need. If nobody, in fact, is using the system right now, I'm not going to pay for any instance. So to me, this idea that the instances and how they're managed and the size of those instances and the fact that there are servers goes out of my view is the same sort of, sort of mindset to me that I had when I thought about the compute side of this problem and how Lambda solved it. And to me, that's like the sort of the ultimate sort of payoff here is can I get storage to address this problem the same way that compute is addressing this problem for me? Because to me, addressing the compute's awesome, but I'm still gonna be chasing scale issues at the storage side of the house uh, if, I don't, if I don't have something like Aurora serverless. The problem is you may want to use Dynamo, and Dynamo can give you scale there as well, but it, you'll, you'll chase other issues there um, with hotkeys and other things. So to me, having this sort of tr managed scale here where you truly think about nothing uh, is what I'd love to see happen for serverless SaaS applications. Uh, and one last variant of this, because I talk about silo models and pool models, and I just want to make it clear that the whether you're silo or pooled here, whether each tenant has their own database or whether you're sharing the database, Aurora Serverless works for both those models, right? So it'll still size the instances appropriately for that individual tenant, or if it's being shared, it'll size appropriately. So it addresses both sides of that equation for me. Now, I just thought it would be fun to say, what, if, what would it look like to have a SaaS solution that had absolutely no servers in it at all. Because I thought, well, that would be like my, my at least my architect side of me thought that would be my fantasy world. Um, probably wouldn't be practical because it probably would have to do, make some trade-offs here or there. But I put together this stack that it basically is the serverless stack at the top, the web client, the API gateway. Now I've got Lambda functions. And, uh, and now I'm using Aurora serverless as my storage and I'm using it with whatever, whatever partitioning scheme I want. I'm using whatever partitioning scheme I want, an isolation scheme I want for my compute side of the house. And the fundamental thing this gives me is I only pay for what I consume. Now, what I have left out of this discussion so far is Fargate. And a really fair question would be here, um, couldn't you just do Fargate here? And for those of you that haven't used Fargate, Fargate's basically containers, but containers in a mono managed model where you don't have to manage the cluster and those bits yourself like you would potentially in ECS. So this idea of managed functions where I don't think about policies, Far Fargate sort of gives me the equivalent of that, but in a container-based model. And I would say it's entirely fair 
that to swap Fargate into this model, in fact, I could go back to this diagram, take Lambda out, put Fargate into that model, and to me, you could argue it's still a serverless model top to bottom. I think people would contest that and say, well, they're containers, or is it really serverless? I don't really care. To me, if I'm not thinking about manage it, it, managing it, and there's no servers to me, even if they exist under the hood, I don't care. It's serverless to me. So um, the nice part of the Fargate approach to this is, the Fargate approach to this, um, for those of you that don't want to break things down so granularly or not comfortable writing in a function-based decomposition, um, you, get a more, you can build more coarse-grained services, and you can deploy them to the containers. Uh, and, and that can be a, a na more natural programming model and a more natural way to transition for some folks. So by all means, um, don't, keep, don't take Fargate off your radar. You should absolutely be thinking about, should I be Lambda? Should I be Fargate? Should I be some combination of those two? Because um, it's perfectly valid. Now, so what are the takeaways here? Well, I hope that it's clear that um, serverless is going to let you focus way more of your attention on the actual IP of your solution. To me, that's the, the, the real payoff here. If I'm focused on my IP and less on all these infrastructure challenges and less on all these scale challenges, I think I'm going to be in a much better position to be more productive as an organization. And I'm focused on the right kind of problems. The, uh, I think that this isolation story is one that you shouldn't ignore. I think you have to make, and I think a lot of organizations don't really push and think hard about how to do isolation. In fact, lots of organizations just do auth authentication and they say, you auth, you're in, you're good. And, and I, don't, I believe you have to think auth at every single layer. So then if you're going to do auth at every single layer, which of these strategies is best for you? Which one's best for your domain? Um, you're going to do IM rules. Well, depends on how many tenants I have and what my profile are, is. Am I going to do a shared and a pooled notion of Lambda functions and acquire credentials at runtime? There's all kinds of trade-offs there, including uh, am I going to write my own wrapper functions and figure all that out? You have to go away and figure it out, and it's not an easy problem. Um, as you start thinking about how to decompose your system into these functions, you should be thinking about how the actual tenant load profiles might influence which functions you choose and how granular those functions are. Um, because really, remember, our goal here is to create the best tenant experience. And sometimes that means not just domain mapping of my function, sometimes scale and availability and fault tolerance and tenant activity could shape which, how I choose which functions are part of my system. Find the logical services. I talked about this notion of where's I've got functions, that's great. Um, which combination of these functions work together? And what is the storage partitioning strategy for that particular collection of functions? Uh, in fact, I did a talk earlier today, and I, I really emphasized this point of saying, remember, multi, you're making multi-tenant policy choices on a service-by-service -service basis. I, I think that's an important part of being a good SaaS developer is to say, um, there isn't sort of a one-size-fits-all. I want to find the right sort of marriage of the right technology, right partitioning scheme for this particular um, service instead of having a global strategy. Um, I think it's worth thinking about, can you, can you, are there opportunities for you to extend the reach of your serverless mindset down into storage? Is there somewhere Aurora Serverless or some other technology can give you serverless at that level so that you get the goodness top to bottom.
And then generally, um, if, you don't, if you don't sort of look at the DevOps part of this equation, um, you're sort of missing it to me. If you're going to bite off serverless, think about how that's going to change your deployment model. Think about how you're going to, uh, it's going to change your overall way you test and what your overall deployment and release cycle is, um, because I think you'll find you have more options here. And finally, the part I started with, which is to me, serverless and SaaS, hopefully after hearing all this, um, should seem like they're, they're a very natural match. And it should be pretty clear why SaaS providers are very interested in levering, leveraging this technology. So um, just quickly, I want to point out that, and I won't expect you to read all this. I'll go through them really fast. There's a ton of additional SaaS content going on this year at reInvent. Um, there are a bunch of breakouts. Um, I have another uh, breakout uh, starting Wednesday and Thursday. There's repeats of that where I tear It's a 400-level session where we'll tear all SaaS solution apart. Um, we also have um, a bunch of chalk talks going on with people on my team who are covering various SaaS topics. If you're interested in those, um, I'll let people get a picture if they want it. Um, there's another set of chalk talks, and they, a few of them are repeating. Recommend that you get in there if there's a topic that interests you. And then the last one is, and we had the first one of these today, um, is we're doing SaaS workshops. They're hands-on workshop. Go build a SaaS solution from the ground up. So that's it. Um, I really appreciate you all being here today. Hopefully you found this valuable. Uh, and enjoy the rest of the conference. And fill out your survey.